Welcome to the September 2nd, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review a study that shows that BCL11B is an important oncogene in acute leukemias with myeloid and T-lymphoid features. Learn more about antibody responses to SARS-CoV-2 vaccination in lymphoma patients receiving B-cell-directed therapies. And examine the role of program death ligand 1, or PDL1, and the PI3 kinase AKT survival pathway in delayed neutrophil apoptosis at sites of tissue inflammation. Our first topic is a study entitled 14Q32 Rearrangements Deregulating BCL11B Mark a Distinct Subgroup of T and Myeloid Immature Acute Leukemia by Danica Di Giacomo from University of Perugia in Italy and colleagues. Acute leukemias of ambiguous lineage are a heterogeneous group of high-risk leukemias characterized by co-expression of myeloid and lymphoid markers. They include acute undifferentiated leukemia, acute leukemias with ambiguous lineage, and mixed phenotype acute leukemias. Thus far, BCR-ABLE1 and rearrangements involving KMT2A, formerly known as the mixed lineage leukemia 1 gene on chromosome 11Q23, are the primary cytogenetic abnormalities that have been identified in these leukemias. The current study focused on 14Q32 rearrangements involving BCL11B, a transcription factor interacting with the nucleosome remodeling and deacetylase complex that is essential for T-cell development and for maintenance of T-cell identity. The investigators screened 915 hematological malignancies from multiple European sites and identified a distinct subgroup of immature acute leukemias characterized by a broadly variable phenotype covering AML, T-myeloid mixed phenotype acute leukemia, and early T-cell precursor acute lymphoblastic leukemia. The 20 cases of immature leukemias accounted for 4% of AML and 3.6% of T-ALL. These comprised four translocations, linking BCL11B on chromosome 14Q32 to different partner genes on chromosomes 2Q22, 6Q25, 7Q21, and 8Q24 while the translocation involving chromosomes 2 and 14 produced a ZEB2-BCL11B fusion transcript, the other three rearrangements displaced transcriptionally active enhancer sequences close to BCL11B without producing fusion genes. However, all translocations resulted in activation of BCL11B. The investigators referred to these neoplasms as BCL11B-activated acute leukemias. They share a unique expression signature characterized by JAK-STAT activation that is different from other AML and TALL patients. All BCL11B-activated patients carried mutations in FLT3 in the absence of NOTCH1-activating mutations and recurrent mutations in WT1, DNMT3A, and TET2, which were found in 44%, 33%, and 22% of BCL11B-activated patients, respectively. The cases all shared an immature immunophenotype characterized by leukemia cells expressing stem cell antigens HLADR, CD117, and or CD34, together with T-cell and myeloid markers such as CD2, CD7, CD13, 
and or CD33. More mature T-cell lineage antigens, such as CD1A, CD5, and CD8, were absent. In order to detect functional vulnerabilities, the authors performed ex vivo drug response profiling in five cases. Consistent with activation of FLT3 and JAK-STAT pathways, they found higher sensitivity to tyrosine kinase inhibitors that target FLT3, such as sunitinib and quinolinib, as well as JAK inhibitors, such as vidratinib and momolotinib. Notably, the multi-kinase FLT3 inhibitor mitostorin showed low activity in activated BCL11B cases, despite the presence of FLT3 mutations, indicating that drug sensitivities may depend on more complex factors than just the specific gene mutations. In his accompanying commentary, Jules Mezerink from the Princess Maxima Center for Pediatric Oncology in Utrecht, the Netherlands, notes these data corroborate findings from the group led by Charles Mulligan, from St. Jude Children's Hospital, who presented data at the 2020 ASH annual meeting late-breaking abstract session on some 60 patients with a very similar immunophenotypic profile of BCL11B-activated leukemias, which were also highly enriched for FLT3 mutations. Measuring likens the BCL11B locus to the three-headed mythological creature, Cerberus, in that it is a multi-headed beast driving a variety of immature leukemias by different pathogenic mechanisms activating BCL11B. As he reminds us, BCL11B-activated patients appear to generally be more resistant to standard cytotoxic agents. However, FLT3 inhibitors or JAK inhibitors may provide the clinical power to slay the mighty BCL11 beast, which accounts for these leukemias with promiscuous presentations. Our next manuscript is a prospective non-interventional study entitled Impaired Humoral Responses to COVID-19 Vaccination in Patients with Lymphoma Receiving B-Cell-Directed Therapies by Paula Guillon from Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center and colleagues in Buffalo, New York. Patients with hematological malignancies have shown increased morbidity and mortality to infection with SARS-CoV-2. Unfortunately, cancer patients actively receiving treatment were excluded from enrollment in the clinical trials assessing the three vaccines, Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, that have received either full approval or emergency use authorization from the FDA. Assessing vaccine antibody responses is a high priority given the vulnerability to COVID-19 in this patient population. Treatment with B-cell-directed therapies may adversely impact the production of antibodies in response to SARS-CoV-2 vaccination in patients with lymphoma due to B-cell depletion and or disruption of the B-cell receptor signaling pathway. The long-term immunological effects of B-cell depletion and the characteristics of B-cell reconstitution in lymphoma are not well-defined, despite the widespread use of B-cell-directed therapies. In the lymphoma population, the recovery of the memory B-cell pool is delayed compared to normal B ontogeny, often remaining below normal controls at one year after treatment with the anti-CD20 antibody rituximab. Here, Guillaume and colleagues evaluated antibody responses to the COVID-19 vaccines in B-cell lymphoma patients who were either actively receiving or were at different time points after receipt of B-cell-directed therapies in order to evaluate impairment of antibody production they hypothesized that the ability to respond to the COVID-19 vaccines could be restored after a certain time from treatment discontinuation and actively sought to better define this time threshold. 
The team also studied vaccine efficacy in patients with lymphoid malignancies, either on observation or receiving non-B-cell-directed therapies, and in individuals without lymphoma, including healthcare personnel and nursing home residents. Serum samples were collected within two to eight weeks following the final dose of the vaccine. Patients and healthcare personnel who were previously infected with SARS-CoV-2, all of whom tested positive for IgG against the spike protein, and healthcare providers and residents from the nursing homes that had formed SARS-CoV-2 antibodies prior to the vaccination were excluded from the analysis. They compared antibody production in all patients with B-cell lymphoma, either receiving or that had previously received B-cell-directed therapy, and divided them into four temporal groups receiving the vaccine, on treatment or within three months of active treatment, and after three to six months, six to nine months, and more than nine months after B-cell-directed therapy. They found that only 4 of 41, or 9.7% of patients with B-cell lymphoma that were actively receiving or within three months of completing B-cell-depleting therapies, developed antibodies. In total, 6, or 11%, of the 52 patients actively receiving B-cell-depleting agents or within nine months of completing B-cell-directed therapy, developed antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 virus, regardless of the type of vaccine utilized. This is compared to 88% of B-cell lymphoma patients receiving no treatment or more than nine months from prior treatment, 62% of patients with B and T-cell lymphoma or multiple myeloma receiving other treatments, 100% of healthcare workers less than 65 years old, and 92% of nursing home residents older than 65 years of age. There was a marked difference between B-cell lymphoma patients with ongoing treatment or vaccinated within three months from last treatment and lymphoma patients vaccinated more than nine months after last therapy, a value referred to as the median critical value index IgG production was 0.13 for the recent treatment group versus 20.7 for the second group, a statistically significant p-value of 0.0001. The findings reported here are similar to those reported in chronic lymphocytic leukemia and elderly myeloma patients and raise concerns about the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines in generating humoral immunity with the current vaccination schedule in B-cell lymphoma patients. These data suggest that SARS-CoV-2 vaccination at least nine months from the last B-cell-directed treatment may result in improved antibody titers. This finding is of particular importance in order to further establish a possible revaccination strategy in patients on long-term therapy with B-cell-depleting agents. Further studies are also needed to evaluate the T-cell repertoires in this population and to expand the number of lymphoma patients analyzed. The data also highlight the importance for household members and other close contacts, as well as the community at large, to be immunized in order to achieve some level of herd immunity that would be protective of immunocompromised patients. In her accompanying commentary entitled, The Next Wave, Immunizing the Immunosuppressed, Laura Michaels from the Medical College of Wisconsin reminds us that we have much to learn about the complex interaction of preventative inoculation strategies in patients with disease or treatment-related immunosuppression. Immunosuppressed patients have faced special peril since the beginning of the pandemic, as severe infection rates and morbidity for patients with hematologic malignancies are higher than those with other forms of malignancy. The data emphasize the importance of maintaining infection control practices even after vaccination of patients. Dr. Michaels poses several critical questions, including, what are the best predictors of response in these patients? How much antibody is enough to prevent severe infection? 
Can cellular response, in the absence of humoral response, provide protection? In regions where herd immunity has not yet been achieved, should some treatments be deferred? Should titers be measured in everyone? And of course, will booster strategies be effective for this at-risk population? Our final manuscript today is entitled Upregulated PDL1 Delays Human Neutrophil Apoptosis and Promotes Lung Injury in an Experimental Animal Model of Sepsis by Jia Feng Wang from Shanghai Hospital in Shanghai, China, and colleagues. While sepsis is the leading cause of death in the ICU, treatment options remain limited due to an incomplete understanding of the molecular mechanisms driving the host response to infection. Previous studies have indicated that patients with sepsis experience disordered immune function and that sustained neutrophil activation through delayed apoptosis contributes to nonspecific tissue injury in patients with sepsis. PDL1 is a ligand for PD1 and negatively regulates T cell responses by inducing lymphocyte apoptosis. The expression of PDL1, a co-inhibitory molecule, is increased in neutrophils during sepsis. The authors previously showed that PDL1 is upregulated in neutrophils and correlates with sepsis-induced immunosuppression. Other work has shown that neutrophil apoptosis is regulated through the PI3 kinase AKT signaling pathway, and it has been reported that PDL1 maintains the stemness of cancer cells through AKT signaling. In this study, the authors sought to investigate whether PDL1 delays ex vivo neutrophil apoptosis by inducing AKT phosphorylation in neutrophils from healthy volunteers. They further defined the in vivo role of neutrophil PDL1 in sepsis using a sequel ligation and puncture experimental murine model. First, the authors showed that PDL1 expression negatively correlated with rates of apoptosis in human neutrophils harvested from patients with sepsis. When genetic silencing of PDL1 expression in control neutrophils was performed using siRNA, the neutrophils stimulated with interferon gamma and lipopolysaccharide, or LPS, exhibited significantly higher rates of apoptosis. These findings were replicated in human septic neutrophils transfected with PDL1 siRNA. The investigators next investigated if increased PDL1 expression alters PI3 kinase activation in neutrophils by assessing downstream AKT phosphorylation. They found that AKT phosphorylation was enhanced in resting human neutrophils, stimulated with interferon gamma and LPS, as well as in neutrophils from septic patients. Pretreating control human neutrophils with a PI3 kinase inhibitor prior to interferon gamma and LPS challenge blocked pro-survival AKT signaling and increased cleavage of caspase 3, a marker of apoptosis. Also, Rates of apoptosis were higher in PDL1-deficient murine neutrophils, challenged with interferon gamma and LPS compared to wild-type controls. Using co-immunoprecipitation assays on control neutrophils, challenged with interferon gamma and LPS, they showed that PDL1 complexes with the P85 subunit of PI3 kinase to activate AKT-dependent survival signaling and delay neutrophil apoptosis. The authors next generated neutrophil-specific PDL1 knockout mice. These animals were protected against lung injury and displayed reduced neutrophil lung infiltration in the sequel ligation and puncture sepsis model. 
Compared to wild-type animals, neutrophil PDL1 deficient animals exhibited lower plasma levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha and interleukin-6, and higher interleukin-10 levels in the sepsis model of cecal ligation and puncture, as well as reduced seven-day mortality. Taken together, the data suggests that increased PDL1 expression on human neutrophils, delayed cellular apoptosis by triggering PI3 kinase-dependent AKT phosphorylation to drive lung injury, and increased mortality in clinical and experimental sepsis. In their accompanying commentary, James Elbena and Femme Maichandong from Université de Paris in France highlight the study's major mechanistic insights into neutrophil apoptosis and tissue inflammation. One important message is that PDL1 is not only a key player in cancer immunomodulation, but also in inflammation. Therefore, it may serve as a novel pharmacologic target in other disease contexts, such as rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease. As with any novel findings, several questions arise, including whether PDL1 is expressed on the plasma membrane or on the membrane of neutrophil granules. This has a bearing on the use of anti-PDL1 immunotherapeutic blocking antibodies. It will also be important to understand whether the other important neutrophil functions, such as superoxide production, degranulation, and chemotaxis, are modulated by the PDL1 PI3 kinase AKT access. These data and the questions they raise open exciting new research avenues, which span neutrophil biology, inflammation, and sepsis, and approaches targeting PDL1 or PI3 kinase AKT signaling. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.